All right. Acts chapter 18. We're going to begin in verse 12 today. So today as we go through uh, these verses, actually Acts chapter 18, it's going to be verses uh, 12 through 23. We're going to see Paul's, the completion of Paul's second missionary journey. And um, we looked at, we've looked at this second missionary journey now for a little while. Uh, this, this second journey of Paul's lasted somewhere around four years probably. And what we see was Paul's relentless obedience to Christ to make disciples of the nations, to proclaim the gospel, to fulfill all that Jesus commanded his church. And we are, no doubt, we are today the fruit of Paul's labor. Paul went to the Gentiles, he went to the nations outside of Israel, outside of Judea, outside of the Jews, the ethnic Jews, and Paul preached to the Gentiles. And we are the fruit of men like Paul and men like Peter who went to the nations to proclaim the gospel. And really Paul is very, very instrumental in the Gentiles. What we saw in his second missionary journey was Paul take Christianity from Asia to Europe. And from that Greek peninsula, Christianity spread throughout Europe, from Italy, from Greece, all the way through time to right where we are today. So let's look at Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 12. It says, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia. The Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be a reason why I should bear with you. But if this is a question of words and names in your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. Father, we ask that you would today open our hearts and open our minds to your word and that you would, Father God, give us enlightenment by your spirit that we would have this word wash our minds, renew our minds, transform us and conform us to the very image of Jesus. Amen. All right, I just realized that um, I may, I actually think I did not read quite far enough there. I may have shortchanged you guys, and I certainly don't want to do that. I think I had a few more verses I needed to read. Would you guys mind if I had added to it? It won't cost you anything extra. Okay. With your permission, verse 18, we're going to go down to actually verse 23 today. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. 
he had his hair cut off of Centria, for he had taken a vow, and he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they had asked him to stay a, a time longer, he did not consent. But he took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed in Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. And he spent some time there, and he departed and went over to the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples there. That's where we wanted to go to. All right. And so when Paul gets back to Antioch, that was the completion of this second missionary journey. So let's go back to verse 12. Uh, It's where we ended last week, and we saw that Paul, remember, had a, a vision. God came to him through a dream. He had this vision, and the Lord told him, don't be afraid to preach the gospel. So remember, as we've gone through Acts, we saw Paul had trouble everywhere he went. And it was not the Gentiles, it was the Jews who were creating problems for Paul. Because the Jews who rejected the gospel believed that Paul was preaching heresy. He was preaching a message contrary to what the scriptures taught. Even though Paul would systematically take them through and show them how the scriptures spoke of Christ, revealed Christ, and he proclaimed to the Jews in every synagogue that he went to that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah we are all waiting for. Now, if you know your Bible history and you know your history, you know that Daniel's prophecies, which were, were written uh, when Daniel was in Babylon, so some 400 years to 500 years prior to the birth of Christ, and in those visions that God gave to Daniel, there was laid out this timetable. And so the Jews knew exactly when the Messiah was prophesied to come. And so by the time Jesus is born, there were Jews actively looking for the Messiah. This is why the Magi were watching the stars, and they saw the star, and it was the fulfillment of the prophecy prophecy from Numbers. A, A star, a scepter shall rise out of Judah. And so Paul is going into the synagogues, and he's teaching them from the scriptures Jesus is the Christ you are looking for. Jesus is God's Messiah. Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. Many of them believed, but many of them rejected. And so Paul had troubles in every place he went where there were Jews, where there was a synagogue, because those that rejected the gospel would stir up, not just the other Jews, but would stir up the Gentiles uh, against Paul And so by the time Paul comes to Corinth, Paul has had his troubles with the Jews. And now he's getting ready to preach in this huge city, this huge center of commerce where there's a large Jewish community. And God comes and gives him these words of comfort. And he has this vision. And so Paul preaches courageously with God's assurance, you're not going to be attacked and they're not going to do any harm to you. Now, we should always pay attention to what God says, but we should also pay attention to what God doesn't say. God didn't say no one would be hurt or beat. He just said, Paul, you won't be. 
So in verse 12, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, Achaia was basically the, the Greek peninsula. So if you can imagine, this guy, Gallio, was the authority of the entire Greek peninsula for the Roman Empire. So this was a very powerful person. Uh, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. So from verse 12 to verse 16, we have Luke's account of what happened when Paul was taken by the Jews and accused before Gallio, the proconsul. The accusation was, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when the accusation is made, Luke says Paul is getting ready to make his defense. Paul is just getting ready to open his mouth when Gallio says, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But this is a question of words and names and of your own law. Look to it yourselves. I don't want to be a judge of such matters. And Luke writes that, Gallio drove them from the judgment seat. So Luke's description of the scene, he drove them. So this wasn't Gallio just saying court dismissed and they all filed out very orderly and left, disappointed because they didn't get the, ju the justice or the punishment they were looking for Paul to get. Obviously, they weren't happy so, if you can imagine, this was not an orderly situation. They were probably shouting, yelling, protesting, objecting, uh, trying to convince Gallio that he should listen to them, Paul should be punished, because Luke says he drove them from the judgment seat. And Luke's description of the scene of the Jews being driven uh, from the judgment seat indicates that they did not leave without protest. And more than likely, they, they were being quite disorderly as they were being driven out. But true to God's word, Paul uh, was not attacked. He was not hurt. Just as the vision in Acts 18, 9, and 10 was presented to Paul, the dream there. And so the Jews who accused Paul that were driven out of the court, uh, they did not get to see Paul being punished by the proconsul because the proconsul would not have it. Now, the proconsul was probably not real friendly toward the Jews. Uh, legally, he was it absolutely within his legal right. This has nothing to do with Roman law. This is your own customs, your own things. And we saw this with Jesus. Remember when Pontius was, before, was brought before, uh, or Jesus was brought before Pontius. Pontius said, hey, this, he's not broken any law. He's not committed any transgression against Rome. This is between you guys. I'm going to let him go. And they said, no, crucify him. And Pilate says, what crime has he committed? And they kept crying, crucify him, crucify him. This is what the Jews here wanted to happen to Paul. They wanted Paul to be punished. But it wasn't Paul that was attacked. It was Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. So 
Verse 17 says, Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, that's, that, try to say that, Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So, who was this Sosthenes? He was the ruler of the synagogue. He was, in fact, the new ruler of the synagogue. You remember what happened to the last ruler of the synagogue? Well, verse 8 of Acts 18 tells us. Remember, Paul was driven out of the synagogue. They blasphemed Christ. They opposed Paul. And Paul tells them, he says, your blood be upon your head. I'll go to the Gentiles. In verse uh, 8 of Acts chapter 18 says, Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. So Paul left the synagogue in Corinth after the Jews opposed him and blasphemed Christ. And Luke tells us that Paul shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. In other words, I've done what God has commanded me to do. I have a clear conscience. You will condemn yourself by your very own actions and your very own rejection of Christ. And it says, uh, then Paul says, makes the declaration, From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And it says that there was a worshiper of God by the name of Justice who lived next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, was eventually saved and converted. Well, you can imagine what they did with Crispus. He stopped being the ruler of the synagogue because now he was following Jesus. And obviously, they appointed Sosthenes to become the new ruler of the synagogue, replacing Crispus who had become a disciple of Jesus. And as ruler of the synagogue, in opposition to Paul and in opposition of the gospel, this new guy, Sosthenes, has charges brought against Paul before the proconsul. And they go before Gallio, but the proconsul refuses to hear the charges and he dismisses the case. And the Greeks there, not the believing Greeks, but the pagan Greeks, the unbelieving Greeks, just the normal Greeks who weren't Jews and who weren't believers in Jesus, they took this new ruler of the synagogue and they beat him. So there was this animosity that existed between the Greeks and the Jews. And we might wonder why the Greeks would even care about this sort of thing. But think about this. This is the same thing we see in the Gospels when the Pharisees are nervous about Jesus and the proclamations and the things that Jesus would say. And they were worried that the things that Jesus would say might upset Rome. And if Rome got upset, then the system that they had created that worked very well for them, kind of like our modern day politicians, they've created a system that works very well for them, but it doesn't always work so well for the people beneath them. You know, like you have a health care plan that you have to... Have, but they have their own health care plan that doesn't have all the restrictions and all the things that you have to abide by because they've placed themselves up above. Well, this, this is not new. This, this is human nature. This is what the sinfulness of man does. And so these Greeks 
understood that if Rome gets cross with them, Rome has the power to make their life miserable. And so the Greeks didn't want anything done that could cause the proconsul to make life more difficult. And unlike Greeks who had been ruled by emperors, so remember before Rome ruled the world, who ruled the world? Greek did. Alexander the Great took the Greek Empire all the way to India, and he quit just because they got tired. It's like, don't we have enough of the world? We're kind of tired. We want to go back home to our families. And Alexander says, okay, and they go back. And Alexander, who was an alcoholic, died of alcohol poisoning on his way back home to Greece, and his kingdom was divided in, by his four generals. And, but but Greek, the Greek empire is what ruled the world. So Greeks were used to being ruled by emperors. They were used to this lifestyle, and, and so they didn't have a problem with the Romans. But the Jews weren't quite like that. The Jews were a much more unruly and difficult people. So unlike the Greeks, the Jews were often seen by Rome as an unruly people who did not just quietly submit to the will of the empire or the will of the emperor. Sosthenes was beaten by the Greek mob while the proconsul took no notice. So Gallio, Gallio turned a blind eye to the mob violence that was taking place. And it's very likely that the Jews were of little concern to Gallio except their disorderly conduct. And it could be that Gallio allowed this to happen simply just to kind of teach the Jews a lesson. You stay in your place. And don't bother me. Just be quiet subjects of the emperor and everything's going to be okay. So this account in Acts doesn't tell us what happened to Sosthenes after this, but there is a mention of him again in the scripture. In fact, he's mentioned in the opening greeting of Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. So Paul is in Corinth right now. This is taking place in Corinth. Crispus, the previous ruler of the synagogue, became a disciple of Jesus. Sosthenes was taking Paul to court, opposing Paul. He gets beat by the Greek mob. And we don't know what happened after that. He obviously survived, but more than surviving, he actually found life. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1, Paul opens his letter to the Corinthian church. So 1 Corinthians is written after Paul has already been to Corinth, he's left Corinth. 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing back to this church. So Paul stays in Corinth for a year and a half, and he's establishing the church there. He writes his first letter back to them, and here's how he opens it. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. There, there he is. The guy that got beat by the Greek mob, somehow, by the grace of God, comes to be a follower of Jesus. Now, it could be that Paul sees Sosthenes get beat, and Paul extends kindness and compassion to him, and out of that goodness and out of that kindness, it could be that that's, that's what did it. We don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us. But it does tell us that he is now our brother. So one day when we get to glory, you can look up Sosthenes and ask him, hey, how did you come to be a Christian? Well, let me tell you, after the Greeks beat me to a pulp, I, I don't know. But somehow he goes from that opposing Christianity to embracing it and is mentioned in 
the first epistle to the Corinthians. So this is the power of the gospel. Just like Paul was the enemy of the church and Christ saved him and converted him, Sosthenes was the enemy of Paul and Christ and was saved and converted by the grace of God. Sosthenes, like Paul, went from being an enemy of Christ to a disciple and a proclaimer of Christ. Perhaps Paul, after that beating, showed kindness to this man who had opposed him and even sought the same treatment for Paul that he actually ended up receiving himself. But however it happened, God saved him, made him a co-laborer and companion with the Apostle Paul in the service of the gospel. This is what the gospel does. The gospel takes our enemies and makes them our brothers. When we pray that men be slain by the cross of Christ, when we pray that God would cut down evil men and raise up righteous men, that is not a statement of just, God, execute your your cruel vengeance upon evil men. When we pray God cut down evil men and raise up righteous men, our prayer should be that the very evil men we're praying against are cut down by the cross of Christ. And through the cross of Christ, they are raised up righteous men. They go from being our enemies to being our brothers. This is what's happened to all of us who are in Christ. If you are born again today, if you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. At one time, some point in time, you were cut down in your life. You were crucified with Christ, and you were raised in his life. And the only way that men can be raised in the life of Christ is to be crucified with him. You know, like the old saying says, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Jesus came not only that we might live, Jesus came that we might die. And through our death with him in the cross, we would be raised up to newness of life. That happened to this ruler of the synagogue named Sosthenes. It happened to the previous ruler of the synagogue named Crispus. It's happened to countless men and women and children throughout history. This is God building his church. This is God building up Jerusalem. This is the power of God to take our enemies and make them our brothers and our sisters. This is why we keep praying and preaching the gospel. God can do what no man can. God can give men a new heart. And that's what men need. Men must have new hearts. Not just new minds, but new hearts. And you cannot have a new mind without a new heart. You have the same old mind with the same old thoughts. You might order them differently. You might change things around. But it's like rearranging furniture in your house. You just move it around, but it's the same furniture. It's the same house. When we're born again, when we're crucified with Christ, we're not just getting a house remodel. We become a new house. We become new creations with new hearts and minds that can be renewed to the truth. We now have the mind of Christ. We also have our old mind, and it's that old mind that has to be renewed. That's what the Bible calls the soul 
The Greek word for soul is the word suke. It means the seat of the mind, the will, and the emotions. So your salvation that is spoken of as a past tense completed action is when you were born again and God miraculously transformed your spirit and made it perfectly conformed to his spirit, poured his love into your heart by the spirit of God and made you a new creation. But your mind, you still have all the memories, all the experiences of your old man, your old self, your old nature. And that is the process now when you read the scripture, study the scripture, meditate the scripture, pray. When you allow the water to wash over your mind, yes, to be brainwashed. Don't think that's a bad thing. Just make sure your brain is being washed with the word of God. And as your brain is washed with the word of God, the washing of the water of the word is renewing your mind to the truth as it is in Jesus. It doesn't eliminate, it doesn't erase your old memories because God uses those. He uses the totality of who you were, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly of it to give glory to him. You wouldn't understand the grace of God if you didn't understand your sin. You wouldn't know the grace of God if you don't know your sin. This is why the gospel has to include the preaching of sin and the preaching of repentance. If, if the gospel is just, I get to go to heaven, and everybody gets to go to heaven, and it doesn't matter what we do or what we believe, that's not the gospel. That's some creation. That's a figment of man's wishful thinking. The gospel is not only revealing to me my salvation. The gospel reveals to us our need for salvation. And if we can't see our sin, we can't see our need for salvation. If I can save myself, why do I need Jesus? And we can't save ourselves. And we do need Jesus. And only God can give men new hearts. So verse 18 says, So Paul remained, he still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren, sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. Now remember, we, we talked about them last week. These were the two people that Paul met when he first came to Corinth. They were tent makers, and that was also Paul's trade. Remember, we talked about tents were a little bit different than the way we know tents and understand tents today. Uh, more than likely, Paul was a leather worker because back in that time, uh, tents were made primarily from leather, animal skins. And it was uh, Paul's work as a tent maker was his work to, to be able to take that leather, take that material, and turn it into a tent. That's what Aquila and Priscilla, that was their occupation. But remember, that wasn't Paul's occupation. That was, that was what Paul did on the side to earn a living. Paul's occupation was an apostle. Paul's occupation was a gospel preacher. Paul's occupation was to be a servant of Jesus in this world. So when Paul leaves, when he gets ready to leave Corinth, Paul with Priscilla and Aquila get ready to leave and they go down to Centria to get on a ship to sail across the Aegean Sea to the city of Ephesus on the Asian continent. And it says that Paul had his hair cut off, not like I have my hair cut off, you understand. He got a short haircut. 
Paul had let his hair grow, and he was not cutting his hair. And the Bible says because he had made a vow to God. Now, it doesn't tell us what kind of vow this was. Uh, some people believe Paul took a Nazarite vow. And the Nazarite vow was the same vow that Samson took. Remember Samson in the Old Testament? And no one could discover the, you know, the mystery of his strength. And, and he kept toying with his girlfriend Delilah. And finally, she convinced him. And he unwisely told her what the real deal was. And she cut his hair. And he lost his strength. You know the story. I won't tell you the story. Uh, his hair grew back and so did his strength. And he uh, brought a greater victory at the end of his life, though it cost him his life, uh, than he did all the other ones. Uh, so some people believe that Paul had taken a Nazarite vow. Uh, some believe that, you know, there were vows. Vows were not uncommon, especially for travelers. Very often travelers would, would make vows for safe journey and stuff like that, that might sound superstitious to us, but when you consider all that Paul had been through and how God had miraculously preserved him through shipwrecks and all kinds of things, it's not unreasonable to think that Paul might have you know, made a vow to God that way. Uh, but it does seem that it was more than just that. Um, the thing about a Nazarite vow when a Nazarite vow was finished, you had to take your hair, preferably on your head. So there was a provision. If you make a vow in the city, at the end of the vow, you go to the priest, and you go to the door of the tabernacle, and the priest doesn't cut your hair. The priest shaves your head. And he takes all the hair that he shaved off your head, and he burns it in the fire under the pot that's boiling the peace offering. That's what you did with your hair when you took a Nazarite vow. There was a provision if you were in the country or you weren't in the city and the vow expired that you could cut your hair, you couldn't shave your head, but you could cut your hair, then preserve your hair, take it to Jerusalem, take it to the tabernacle, and then at that point, the priest would shave the rest of your hair that was left and then all that hair would be burned in the fire under the pot for the peace offering. We don't know if that's what Paul did, but it's, it's possible. We do know that Paul was anxious to get to Jerusalem. And it could be that that was why. Because his vow had expired and he needed to get to Jerusalem in order to fulfill his vow because his Nazarite vow was not fulfilled until he actually gave his hair to the priest and it was burned. Then his vow was complete. So he gets on this ship, a centria, he gets his hair cut and it says in verse 19, and he came to Ephesus and left them, Aquila and Priscilla, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So Paul and Aquila and Priscilla sail from Centria. They sail across the sea to Ephesus. And when he gets to Ephesus, Paul leaves Aquila and Priscilla. He goes to the synagogue. This was his custom. Remember, everywhere he went, this is the first thing he did. If there was a synagogue, he would go to the synagogue. So he goes to the synagogue. He enters the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he reasoned with the Jews. And it seems that Paul left immediately after because the Jews are asking him to stay. Would you stay longer? 
But Paul says, no, I cannot. The scripture says he would not consent to stay longer. Verse 20, when they asked him to stay longer, a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing, and he sailed from Ephesus. So Ephesus was a coastal city, it was a port city, so he gets there, he goes to the synagogue, he reasons with them, they say, oh, stay with us longer, he says, no, I can't, I've got to get to Jerusalem for this feast. He, he may have had his hair in a bag, and he knew he had to take that hair to the priest, whatever it was, he said, I must keep the feast in Jerusalem. Now, it doesn't tell us what feast it is either, but more than likely, it was the Passover. Uh, it could have been tabernacles, um, but more than likely, it was the Passover. Uh, the Passover was very often just referred to as the feast. And so, whatever feast it was, Paul leaves Ephesus and he sails down the coast to Caesarea. And verse 22 says, And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. Now, you might not realize it tells us exactly where Paul greeted the church there. And it wasn't at Caesarea. When it says he, he had gone up and greeted the church, that is referring to Jerusalem. It doesn't say Jerusalem, but it says that he'd gone up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. Paul goes up to Jerusalem, greets the church. It's been several years, probably four years at the minimum, that Paul has seen uh, the brothers in Jerusalem. Paul's second missionary journey was about four years long. And remember, that journey begins when, when Paul is leaving uh, Jerusalem to go to Antioch, and it's from Antioch that they're sent out on their missionary journey. So it's been years since Paul's been back to Jerusalem, and he hasn't seen James and John and, and the other brethren. He lands at Caesarea, and he goes up and greets the church. Notice, all the scripture says is that he landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church. Then he went down to Antioch. And you'll notice in the scripture, when it's referred to going to Jerusalem, you always go up to Jerusalem. It doesn't matter. This is not about elevation or geography. It doesn't matter where you are. If you're on the top of Mount Everest, and you're a Jew, and you're going to Jerusalem, and you're getting ready to leave the summit of Everest, you're going to turn to your buddies, and you're going to say, See you later, guys. I'm going up to Jerusalem. And they might say, oh, you're already on top of the world. How can you go up any higher? That's not the point. You always go up to Jerusalem. And when you leave Jerusalem, you are always going down to wherever you go. Leaving Jerusalem, go climb Mount Everest. Guys, I'm leaving Jerusalem. I'm going down to Everest doesn't make sense logically to us. But this tells us what the Jews inherently understood about Jerusalem. 
which makes it even more tragic as we have studied the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights, which makes it even more tragic to see that, that they understood this about Jerusalem. In even the way they spoke of the city, they spoke of it correctly, but they, they didn't have it in their hearts. They could not see the fullness of what God had intended and what God was doing. So Paul goes up to Jerusalem and he greets the brothers. This is absolutely fitting because Jerusalem, as we know, is the bride of the Lamb. The holy and new Jerusalem is the glorious heavenly city. The earthly Jerusalem that Paul is going up to here in the book of Acts, that earthly Jerusalem situated there in Israel was simply a foreshadowing of the true. Paul understood this. Paul knew this. Because when you read Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul talks about the Jerusalem above and the Jerusalem below. And he said, the Jerusalem below is still in bondage. But the Jerusalem above, he writes to these Gentile believers in Galatia, is the mother of us all. Paul understood the true, the truth and the true understanding of what Jerusalem represented. And so by God's grace, Jerusalem is always the place we are ascending to. Even now, as you are sitting in these seats in this building, 2,000 years after this letter was written, this account was written, this record was written, we are still ascending to Jerusalem because God is still building up Jerusalem. And one day, that completed Jerusalem will descend from heaven and heaven and earth will come together and merge. And we will live in the new creation. Not only in, but more importantly, as that heavenly Jerusalem, the bride of the Lamb. So after leaving Jerusalem, Paul goes down to Antioch. He returns to Antioch. And this marks the end of his second missionary journey. And upon coming back to Antioch, Paul returns to the city where all of, both of his missionary journeys at this point began. Paul's first missionary journey lasted about a year, probably a little over a year. This second one that he is just completing, four years. And verse 23 says, after he had spent some time there and departed, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order. In other words... Galatia was the first region he came to as he traveled northwest out of Antioch. He came to the region of Galatia. After he left Galatia, he came to that next region, Phrygia. And why did he go there? To strengthen all the disciples. So his journey for, from Antioch back to the regions there began his third missionary journey. And what was his purpose? It was the same reason he left the first time, his second missionary journey was to go back and strengthen the churches, which culminated with him. He gets up there, and he's going to go, remember, he's going to go east along the Black Sea, and God says, no, don't go that way, and Paul has the vision of the man in Macedonia, and he gets on a ship, and he sails across to the Greek peninsula, and now he's back in Antioch, and he's going back up to strengthen these churches. 
So Paul spent some time in Antioch, not long though, just a few months before he began to go back through those regions. And so we see in this that Paul's true occupation, like we talked about last week, was proclaiming the gospel of Christ. It was making disciples and strengthening those disciples and building up the church everywhere that he purposed to go. And even as he purposed to go certain places, because his heart was to be in the will of God, God would redirect him according to his own purpose. And what did Paul do? Paul obeyed the leading of the Lord. So we should not look at the Apostle Paul and think of him as some anomaly in God's kingdom. We, we look at Paul and say, wow, true, there will never be anyone like Paul again. Paul is absolutely unique because every human being is unique. But his zeal for God, his commitment to obey the command of Christ, to make disciples that should not be unique. It wasn't that Paul was special. It wasn't that Paul had, had more of something than we do. Paul had the same Jesus that we have. Paul had the same Holy Spirit. He has the same Holy Spirit that we have. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead that was in Paul is the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead that's in each and every one of us today. Paul wasn't more gifted, more talented. He, he didn't have greater human powers than we have is what my point is. Did he apply himself to obedience to God more than we do? I could say safely he does more than I do. But does that mean that I can't be obedient to God? Does that mean I can't have a zeal, the zeal of the Lord and believe God and trust God and seek God that I too would walk in that kind of obedience, that I too would have that kind of zeal, that I too would seek to have the Spirit of God work in me and move through me the way it did the Apostle Paul, we can all have that. We can all desire that. There is nothing about Paul his level of radical obedience to Christ that should be anomalous. In fact, it should be common in the church of the Lord Jesus. And, and it has been. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here 2,000 years later. So think of all the nameless, faceless people that have brought us to where we are today. They aren't all written in history books. They haven't all been coronated as saints in the church. God has his army. God has his people. And God will always have his people. And God will always have his army because the gospel can't be stopped. It doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what the government says. It doesn't matter what the unbelievers say. We're doing a fabulous Sunday school right now talking about one-ism, two-ism. And it's relevant. This is what's happening in our world right now. And as dark as it may look, the world can't stop what God's doing. They can't do it. They never have been able to, and they never will be able to. The problem today is that we very often, if not most often, look to the arm of the flesh to save us. Today, we have much of the church and most of the nation looking to politicians in Washington to save us. Man has turned to everyone and anyone but the Lord as the answer to 
the virus that has the world on lockdown. We've, brought, we've, been, we've bought into the fear. We've been brought into the fear at the expense of faith and wisdom. Humanity seems to have become dependent upon itself to save itself and to heal itself. In man's rejection of God, man has rejected God's order of creation. The world can no longer accept the concept of a man and a woman, but has created from its own vain imagination countless categories of gender to accommodate the sin of man and the rejection of the creator. Our world today is not far different from the world that the Apostle Paul made his missionary journeys through. The cultures that Paul encountered 2,000 years ago are really not different than the cultures we encounter today. The paganism and the deification of man in Paul's day is no different than it is in our own day. It may be dressed up differently, but underneath the facade, it is, it is the same lie the serpent brought to man in the garden. If the church of the Lord Jesus does not begin to stand up against these things by preaching and teaching and living the one and only true gospel, there will be no power going forth from the church through which man will be saved. For the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And each one of us must make a commitment. We use the church in sweeping terms, but you are the church. I am the church. So when we talk about what the church must do, we're talking about what each and every one of us individually must do. Each one of us must demonstrate and instill that commitment into our children and, and into all that we have influence over. While it seems we have some people ready to take up arms in this nation, with record gun sales and ammunition nowhere to be found, when I'm out, every academy I go by, I just go in just to see. No guns, no ammo. But you know what? I don't have trouble going into bookstores and finding Bibles. Bibles are still plentiful. No guns and no ammo. We got Bibles collecting dust on shelves all over the world, all over America. I have not yet found an out-of-stock label under any category Bible. Bibles are left to collect dust while man seek to save themselves. And it seems that man may be putting his trust in the wrong place. If we are not armed with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, we are defenseless. If we are not clothed with the armor of God, we have no protection. God cannot save us. If God cannot save us, we certainly cannot save ourselves. If God can't save us, we are hopeless. You do realize that, right? Apart from him, we can do nothing. We have no hope apart from him. In him, we have all hope. We have already been given victory. We cannot be defeated. Certainly, we need to prepare for difficult times and even disaster. But our first preparation should be spiritual. Spiritual preparation shouldn't be our last. It shouldn't be the afterthought. Oh, hey, well, well guys, we better say a prayer real quick before we, you know, get ready to go here. No, it should be our first. I pray for America that it, has, that it is not looking to God last. I pray, especially 
most fervently, first and foremost, for the church, that the church would not look to the arm of the flesh, but the church would look to her Savior, to her Lord, Jesus. I pray for America that it is not the case that she is thinking of God as an afterthought, though it has been that way in times past and may be that way right now. But the church, the people of God, must know better. Jesus is our hope. We come to the table of the Lord each week as a visible expression of coming to the Lord, of acknowledging Him as our hope, as our salvation. Paul wrote to the Philippians to let their requests be made known to God with thanksgiving. We come to this table of thanksgiving with thankful hearts for the salvation we have in Jesus, a salvation He purchased for us with His own body and His own blood. We come to this table hopeful in his salvation. He has promised, and he is not a man that he should lie. Trust God, not only to get you to heaven, but to get you through this life, and to do so in a way that is glorifying to him and edifying to you. Amen? Jesus is Lord, and he is the Savior. Trust him. As you trust him, you are welcome to this table. If you count yourself part of the covenant people of God, whether this is your church, home, body, or not, you are welcome to this table. We believe in the holy Catholic church. We believe in the unseen universal church. Believers since the beginning of time until Jesus sets his foot back on this ball of dirt we call the earth. We believe in the church. And if you count yourself a part of that church, then welcome to Jesus. Let's all stand. Paul writes in his epistle, it is high time that the church awake. What he's saying is it's past time. And it is past time that we as the church and we as the people of this nation turn to the Lord. If you are humbly turned to him, if you are humbly crying out to him, then continue with all fervency, all the fervency you can. And if you don't know where or how to start, then start on your knees. Start with a humble heart in reliance to God, but cry out to him, turn to him, confess your own sin. I confess my own sin. But I also confess the sins of this nation as I cry out to God. We are the people of God. And God promised if my people called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. Our land needs healing. And Jesus is the only healer that can heal it. And we are the people that hold the key to that healing. We the church must cry out to our God and to our Savior. So let us do that on behalf of our nation. Let us do that on behalf of the church. Let us do that for his glory. Amen. Amen.